The following podcast contains explicit language. You're listening to the Cinematography Podcast presented by Hot Rod Cameras, a program about the art, craft and philosophy of the moving image and the people who make it happen. Coming to you from the world headquarters of Hot Rod Cameras in Hollywood, California, are your hosts, Ben Rock and Ilya Friedman. Hey, Ilya. Hey, Ben. How's it going? Holy crap. I feel like it's been like two weeks since I've spoken to you. Because it's been two weeks since you've spoken to me. Crazy, crazy. I always wait for uh, our producer, Alana Cody, to like say, hey, uh, send me over a Zoom link for the host wraps. And then it just didn't happen one weekend. And I'm like, what's going on? Well, we had a special episode last week. So, yeah, so that's why. And there I was, was afraid no, that I no was host fired. Wraps. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, you know, I know you have a very fragile ego. You probably very. thought immediately that, you know, you were fired and, you know, the show was over and all that. Can I tell you something that will be of mild interest to only the most hardcore of our fans? <laughs> Go for it. I can't use it yet, but BenRock.com is mine. I thought for sure that would be your short end. No, no, I don't, I don't feel like there's enough of a story there. So apparently <laughs> when you transfer a domain, I didn't realize this, you have to wait five to seven days to even put anything on it. So I paid for it. They gave me the code. Everything is in order, and I probably won't have access to it for another two or three days. But maybe by the time this episode drops, benrock.com will actually be my website. Yeah, hardcore listeners of the show, people who've listened to the show for, for years or to the very end of the show, have probably heard your stories about how the Benrock boat company yes. owned benrock.com. And then it was, <laughs> and then it was purchased by Land and Sea. And then Land and Sea was eventually uh, purchased acquired. by Brunswick. <laughs> Brunswick, which is like one of the biggest boating companies in the world. And I have to give mad props to Brunswick and all the people at Brunswick, because once I finally got through to the person who could uh, who could make it happen for me, she made it happen like in a week. And part of it was, uh, and this does relate to something that we talk about a lot. We say, do you go to film school or, or not film school? And because I am a graduate of the University of Central Florida... And her husband was also a graduate of UCF in her message to me when I thanked her. She was like, go Knights. And I'm like, oh, my God, being a UCF <laughs> grad. alma mater paid off. Your education yeah. paid off. Look so at if that. you don't go to film school, uh, 20 <laughs> you, you years might. later, you might not be able to get your name as a URL from a boating company. That's just I know it's a very specific <laughs> message, but it's also universal, even though it's not. Yeah, it's it's entirely universal. Not it's not persistence that paid off. It's the fact that you happen to go to school with somebody's spouse. Yeah, I, I uh, do well, think not I do even think, at the same time, but just the same school. I, as I do think spouse. endless persistence. Like I think at a certain point they're like, we're not using this website, and this asshole is never gonna <laughs> let us breathe air without harassing us about getting his name as a URL. So anyway, uh, it, was, it was nice of them to do it. It really was. They could have like charged you an outrageous fortune. They could have they, done. They the charged me literally the cost of the transfer fee. They didn't they didn't make any money on this deal and they were really cool about it. So I have nothing but mad props for uh, Brunswick Corporation. And if I ever buy a boat, I promise it will be from them. Wow. Well done. I really hope now you become incredibly successful and start picking out boats. That's a great idea. That's yeah. that, that would be uh, them paying it forward, right? That'd That's be, right. That'd you be know, you'd be paying, paying it back. If so, you started well, buying boats and giving them to other people, then you'd be paying it forward. Oh, okay. So, yeah, I don't understand paying it forward at all. The concept <laughs> eludes me. Uh, and I never saw the movie, and now I won't because Kevin Spacey's in it. So, um, <laughs> anyhow. Yeah, let's get into our close focus. Let's, yeah, uh, yeah, let's yeah. get into this. Hey, who's on the show today? I could not be more excited. It was like old home uh, week for me, the week that I spoke to our guest, Ginger Jarnigan. Uh, Ginger oh, Jarnigan yeah. was our sixth guest ever. And the episode dropped, I believe, in 2014. We talk about it on the show. Hadn't talked to her since. She has a new movie called Asking For It. That's kind of like a, it's like a genre <laughs> mashup. For it. it's, 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 there's like 10 different genres going on in this. Whoa. And she, she talks about a lot of their inspirations. But also, and I think that this is of a special interest to a lot of our listeners, she was brought in at the 11th hour to shoot this movie. And mm. it's interesting to hear her talk about how do you prepare when you don't really have, time you don't have prepare. the time to yeah. prepare. Like, you know, we talked to Ari Wegner, who had nine months, a year and a half, whatever it was, with Jane Campion to prepare to shoot The Power of the Dog. 
got her an Oscar nomination. But it's interesting also, you know, and, and maybe more of a common story than we like to know that Gendra didn't have a long, luxurious prep time. She had to hit the ground running and she did an amazing job. I mean, she does great work. So it's always cool to talk to her. And it was a weird old home week, too, because literally that same week uh, I had lunch with Fraser Bradshaw, who is oh, wow. our, our third guest, I want to say. <laughs> yeah, I think I think that's right. Something yeah, like yeah. That. Now that we've had Gendra back on the show, maybe we should uh, we should bring Fraser uh, Fraser. Excuse me. Why am I saying I've got Greg Fraser on the brain? I should bring <laughs> we should bring Fraser back at some point. Uh, yeah, get get as, the update well. from him. Yeah, yeah. We should get we should do some updates on some of those early people. Get get me Wingrove. Yeah, you know, two hundred episodes in. Uh, the, I'm guessing and, and seven seven years, oh, eight years, eight, eight years eight, is our eighth year. I'm guessing there's a few updates. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, let's get into the close focus. Something interesting happened this week, right? With Nielsen. You remember Nielsen? They're still relevant. They do the ratings, you know, even though. Well, and, and know, I but, mean, like we just we, we just talked about them a few months ago that they started doing Nielsen ratings for streaming services, which, you know, streaming services are this insane black box where nobody knows, even though they have exact analytics beyond anyone's analytics ever before Netflix and Amazon Prime and everything. Uh, the only thing they don't know is what's going on in your mind while you're watching their content. But, you know, they know everything about you and who you are and what you're watching and everything, but they don't release any of that. So Nielsen just started doing what they have always done with television and they started doing ratings for streaming services, which is a brilliant idea. So anyway, do go on. OK, so they did this report and it turns out that most Americans are overwhelmed by streaming choices. Oh, God, I, yes. I believe that to be true. I know many people feeling overwhelmed by the amount of streaming choices available. And it turns out right now that there are nearly one million title choices available overall Oof. throughout streaming. I do so, sometimes find myself like like flicking through Amazon Prime and being like, do we have an, uh, have we made too many movies? Is there, are, are there just, is there just too much stuff out there? I mean, honestly, I wanted to watch Severance. I'm a huge fan of Ben Stiller, but it wasn't until I listened to your interview that I broke down and went to Apple TV and watched it. And of course it's a freaking masterpiece, just an amazing show, but like we're swimming in masterpieces. There's, there's so many amazing things and it's hard to decide what you're going to watch. And so I just end up watching John Carpenter's The Thing again all the time. <laughs> Well, I'll tell you, in addition to this one million titles available, or approximately, it's it's rounding up slightly, but not by too much. The 817,000 titles that are easily accessible right now via streaming platforms. Oh, my God. Is up 26 and a half percent in just the last three years. So if you hadn't caught up on your viewing, the chances of you ever catching up now. I mean, well, here's the thing. I think people are going to have to get much more selective. You're going to have to curate much more. You're going to have to rely on, you know, friends, family, critic recommendations, because there is too much stuff for any one person to keep up with at all. So while consumers are concerned about the increased cost of their streaming subscriptions, nearly all swore 93 percent that they wouldn't end a subscription. So even though people are concerned about the increased costs and how many services they have, they're not getting rid of any of their, well, uh, their services. Okay. So <laughs> I'm not defending cable and cable sucks. However, one of the great things about cable was that you would bundle stuff. You would get it all in a bundle. So you didn't have to individually subscribe and be individually charged separately for uh, Amazon Prime ben, uh, TV. Yes. It's funny you should mention bundling because that is also in this same report where they say that subscribers are enthusiastic about a bundling option like cable, except they also want complete control over how they bundle those services. I, and I which agree, ones though. I mean, like the technology exists. The technology yeah, it, exists for that. I mean, this is existed part of for probably 30 years for that but. well yeah but like you know if you were going to get a cable subscription like for instance i'm not down on anyone who watches sports but if i live to be a thousand years old i will never watch espn and yet whenever i've had cable i'm paying for espn i'm paying for home shopping network i'm paying for religious channels i'm paying for things that i wouldn't pay for and i would rather put a hundred percent of my money into the channels that i want now the counter argument to that has always been like you're subsidizing smaller channels so something like adult swim that maybe everybody doesn't watch 
but it enables them to make better stuff and it enables, uh, you know, it, it's kind of a rising tide raises all boats kind of an argument. So if we're in a bundling world where we only choose our bundle and we just kind of like stay in our lane and only watch the stuff that we want to watch, what that ultimately means is we're not going to get more variety of things. We're probably just going to get further and further siloed in our media habits, you know, in the same way that we have in our news watching habits. Uh, it's a bad example, but I'll talk to my father and my father just doesn't get streaming at all. And so something that's like a water cooler show on Netflix, he's never even heard of it. And it's easy, like if you're talking to someone who doesn't subscribe to Hulu or Disney Plus or whatever, you can't really talk Mandalorian to someone who doesn't subscribe to Disney Plus. But it would be good, I think, to have some kind of a, a bundling option and maybe oh, some ben, of that. You're, you're so quaint bringing up Mandalorian. Everyone knows it's all about Moon Knight now. <laughs> no, I'm just saying, yeah. Uh, well, and I like Moon Knight, but I feel like Mandalorian was a water cooler show. And Moon Knight is a very good show that I have talked to many people about, but I don't know that it's as water coolery as Mandalorian right, was. But it just happens to be the moment, the, the thing that's happening right now on, on Disney Plus. Well, so. sure. I mean, Disney Plus is like a Gatling gun of high uh, production value TV series that they're shooting from every IP that they own at us. So we're getting Star Wars and Marvel and whatnot constantly. That's right. Obi-Wan Kenobi coming to you soon. Yeah, yeah. I look forward to their Salacious Crumb uh, series. I want to have a whole uh, whole <laughs> origin crumb. story of Salacious Crumb, how he ended up, like how he filled out his job application to go work for Jabba the Hutt. What language did he fill it out in? What was the review process like? Did they have good HR at Jabba's palace? Uh, I want to know more about Salacious Crumb. There, there's a character named Salacious Crumb. You're you're mining pretty deep for me. I, Salacious I Crumb is there. the really annoying puppet that sits that like has a horrible cackling <laughs> laugh that that sits on Jabba's throne and laughs oh, yeah. and is mean yeah. to everyone. That's Salacious Crumb. <laughs> I didn't know that it, that yeah. that creature. Had a you kind of think that George Lucas was running out of ideas the day he named that character. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty funny. Yeah. Uh, uh, all right. So anyway, I, Salacious <laughs> Crumb origin story coming to you summer of 2024. Uh, all right. Well, hey, let's get to the interview with Jendra Jarnigan. Here's Jendra. The Cinematography Podcast Interview. All right. I am here with a crazy, exciting interview with Jendra Jarnigan. Jendra was our sixth interview. It was, uh, do you remember the date, Jendra? The interview was released in January 2015. So you were doing a recap on the year 2014 in cinema and technology as a part of my episode. Oh, my God. I can't imagine how cutting edge that must sound by today's standards. So and it was in person because back then people recorded podcast interviews in their studio. I know. <laughs> you know, we've talked a lot about COVID, but there are adaptations. And one of the ones we made was we're now doing it over Zoom. So I believe you're in New York. I'm currently in New York, yes. Yes, yes, and I'm in L.A. So we've been, uh, you know, it's been a lot of fun because we've been able to talk to people who maybe weren't in L.A. or weren't in L.A. at that time, uh, talk to some really exciting people, and yourself included. So thank you so much for coming back on the show. You're welcome. I'm, I'm excited to be back. I've, I've done a lot of podcast recordings over the years, and the Cinematography Podcast is the one that sort of keeps on giving in terms of... Uh, really? Yes. I've I have heard from more people either my peers or uh, aspiring people who I've inspired by listening to me, reach oh, out wow. to me on Instagram or find That's my great. website on email being like, oh, I heard you on the cinematography podcast. Or sometimes I'll meet someone and they're like, oh, I first heard who you were on the oh, cinematography wow. podcast or you first got on my radar from the cinematography part. I think I've heard that like 20, 30 times. Holy crap. From various people. And, and I, nothing else that I've ever done in terms of press or publicity or speaking engagements or anything has had that longevity over time to have so many people tell me that they've been hearing that and that they appreciated hearing me or I inspired them or at least they got familiar with my work through my involvement in the Cinematography Podcast. So you, you definitely have, a, it seems, a, a bigger reach than, uh, oh. than anyone else. Well, I mean, we've just been we've been doing it, I think, for eight years now, It's eight, seven or eight years. And again, you were the sixth guest we ever had on. Uh, so thank you for coming back. <laughs> 
Um, but let's talk about you and your new film, Asking For It. It's kind of a genre mashup. I kind of want to hear from you, like what what all the genres, but I sort of got part horror movie, part Western. Like it felt a little like the Wild Bunch. It felt a little bit like a Rob Zombie film. There's like so many influences going on. So tell me a little bit about the movie and kind of what went into it. Well, structurally, it's actually a road movie. But then stylistically, the director, Eamon O'Rourke, likes to call it an exploitation movie without the exploitation <laughs> in terms of the, you know, the stylistic influences and, and the structure of, of the filmmaking technique, or yeah. the, I should say the technique taking center stage in the storytelling. Mm -hmm. So the basic movie, I mean, can you give me the basic pitch for the movie so our audience kind of knows what it's about? Sure. Uh, the way I describe it is that it's a female vigilante revenge thriller uh, about a group of female vigilantes who exact revenge on men who've done bad things to women. Kiersey Clemens plays Joey, who's a waitress in a small town and hasn't quite figured out what direction she wants to go with her life in terms of not being particularly ambitious or focused, you know, just kind of happy-go-lucky living her life in her small town and she gets sexually assaulted by an old friend of hers who's back in town and it shakes her world upside down. So she tries to go on living her life and putting it behind her and doesn't really try to make a big deal out of it and, and just wants to move on. And that just proves to be increasingly difficult as, as time goes on in terms of her dealing with her unprocessed unprocessed trauma. It just sort of emotionally hijacks her, which is, you know, one of the, my favorite sequences in the movie that we call the dissociation montage. Mm. So uh, a regular at the diner where she works, a character named Regina, played by Alexandra Ship, notices a change in Joey and realizes that something something's going on there. So she invites her to a party at a place called the Cherry Bomb, which is sort of like a farmhouse barn underground nightclub slash safe house. With phenomenal lighting, I might add. That's my other favorite sequence in the movie is Joey's introduction mm. to the Cherry Bomb. Thank you very much. And basically she gets involved with this group of vigilantes and doesn't really know what she's getting herself into it, it's not like she meets them and like hi we're vigilantes want to join our club it's it's more of a she's enticed and seduced by these strong empowered seemingly fearless women and sort of finds um an acceptance and an excitement there and and starts going along for the ride with uh different things that they're getting themselves into and she has to make some choices along the way about whether she's down to participate in what becomes a slippery slope of extreme moral justification and revenge, seeking justice where justice hasn't been served and, you know, do the ends justify the means? And if you're not getting served by the justice system and feel like you want to take matters into your own hands and basically it's, it's a wild ride. And part of the approach to the cinematography is that we wanted to portray it as a wild ride. You mentioned that the director called it an exploitation movie without the exploitation. Were there exploitation movies, be it old Jack Hill movies or or whatever that that were touchstones for you, Russ Meyer? Like I can see kind of the DNA of some of those old movies being turned upside down on their heads. Although Jack Hill would have made a movie like this, I think. But uh, what were the inspirations? Well, I know Switchblade Sisters was an inspiration for the director. And I know, you know, the the film had multiple editors on the project. And one of the editors that Eamon sought out was one of Robert Rodriguez's editors. Um, we referenced Thelma and Louise thematically, but not stylistically. Belly was a, a film. Uh, oh, I love that movie. Very visual, very colorful that we looked at for its bold stylism to be like, how far are we talking about here? I think the more yeah, that yeah. you depart from naturalism in your storytelling, the more you need to go with references to make it clear, like, how bold are we talking about here? Yeah, yeah. Um, so Belly was the first thing we watched together. We revisited some of True Romance. And then the one that would you could maybe put in the exploitation canon would was uh, Natural Born Killers. 
I can so see that. And I actually had that thought while you were talking about it. And, you know, but I feel like Natural Born Killers, which was shot by Robert Richardson, is like it's referencing a lot of the same kinds of exploitation movies. So it's kind of it's a throwback to, again, like to those Jack Hill style movies of the 60s. But it's really bold and risky in its storytelling, you know, for for I mean, I didn't love that movie, but I really admired how big a swing Oliver Stone was taking there in, in terms of like the riskiness of the filmmaking really go, you know, go big or go home for real. I watched, I was a projectionist when that movie came out and I watched it dozens of times and I was just in love with it. And I remember, uh, I, I hope I'm not going to get myself in any trouble when I say this, but I remember watching, uh, Errol Morris's documentary fast, cheap and out of control and loving it in the same way. Well, what's the common thread there? Robert Richardson. And when Oliver Stone stopped working with Robert Richardson after U-Turn, which I think was like 1997 or 1998, it's not that his films are bad, but I feel like they're missing that spark. And I feel like the spark of what I love about his work was was Richardson. But I feel like you can look at Natural Born Killers as an example of like just unbound. The cinematography is so, so surprising and shocking often in that movie. Even today, I feel like it's a movie that's been that style kind of became a style that a lot of people used at the time. So it kind of fell into cliche and then into misuse and then kind of is coming back now. But I feel like it was the pioneering thing that went in that direction. So when you say you came on kind of at the 11th hour there, like how 11th hour are we talking about? So I went to Oklahoma or basically started working on the film three weeks before we started shooting. Oh my God. That's crazy short. Yeah. And I don't like getting hired that last minute like I would Mm. rather I mean I don't expect to be paid for more than three or four weeks of prep on a low budget indie film but I want to be able to ramp up to that yeah even to just be thinking about it yeah like the the day that you arrived you're scouting locations and and needing to answer questions that affect the entire trajectory of the film's you know look style and logistics and it's like I don't even have a, a good enough handle on the script yet, or I haven't gotten to know the director well enough in terms of what our approach is going to be and what the stylistic, artistic, creative, thematic priorities are. So please, people, hire your cinematographers. Give them, <laughs> give them some advance notice. You know, even if you're not paying them yet, they can at least start thinking about the film, give it, give the script a deep dive. You can start having conversations about your your references, your influences, your preferences, et cetera, prior to the boots on the ground, you know, hit the ground running full steam ahead. I mean, and unfortunately, it's the reality of production that sometimes key, key people are brought on at the last minute. Like, can you give us any advice about how to make the most of short time when you don't have enough time when you don't like, you know, Ari Wegner told us that I think she and Jane Campion had like a year. A year. I heard her say that. Yes. So <laughs> saying, I was like a year after a while. It's like, are you it just feels like your roommates. But but I mean, like, I feel like, you know, you look at that movie and it's like such an amazing singular vision. But again, the unfortunate reality of the world is sometimes you're brought on at the last minute so how do you make the most out of out of that kind of abbreviated time it was helpful that the director had done a lookbook prior to my hiring so Mm. i knew stylistically what the broad strokes of what kind of movie this was so like as i was reading it i could visualize it in a certain way based on the lookbook. So there was no time to create a lookbook together once I was on board. So having that done already when I came aboard definitely helped get me up to speed faster. The other thing that we did was, which is sort of like, oh, it's regrettable that we don't have more time, but we don't have more time. So how are we going to deal with this? Is we spent our evenings as sacred one-on-one creative time. So our days were filled with meetings and scouts and schedules and you know he he would have castings and everything that goes along with the pre-production of a movie but whenever we were done for the day whether that was seven or eight or nine you know we would spend at least a couple of hours together over dinner and afterwards chipping away at developing our creative collaborative bond so we basically protected and defended that to everyone, basically being like, no, like sometimes we would invite others along to watch films with us that we were planning to watch, or we were going to dig into someone's character and that involved 
costume or something that we'd bring other people into it. But it was like, no one can touch our time because you, you're not giving us the time. There's no time for us during the day to say, this is our creative time. Or frankly, when I've tried to do that with directors to be like, this is our, you know, we're going to do shot listing every morning from 8 a.m. to 10 p.m. Like that always gets encroached on that. Even, yeah. even if you're trying to protect it, things become you know, th there are fires that need to be put out and it's like, okay, you could make a movie without a shot list. <laughs> you can't make a movie without, you know, you lost your main actor. Yeah. yeah. Your location fell through, you know, like emergencies. It, it's, I always get pushed off as like a, you're not the priority kind of view. So we, we protected our evenings basically. Oh, that's, that's like, really okay, smart. We're willing to stay up late. We're willing to eat into our sleep a little. And then it's like, oh, if I'm, t if we're tired tonight, that we're really just not, not functioning mentally, like we'll, we'll make it a short night, you know, or if it's like, oh, we're on a roll and we're inspired and we want to keep going. Well, you know, it was, it was up to us. So that, that was, that was uh, sort of how we handled that. You talked a little bit about the, what you call the, I think the dissociation montage. I mean, I, I'm actually incredibly surprised to find out you had such short pre-production because the sequences like that feel so thought out and so well constructed and so stylistic. So how much of that was in the script? How much, where did the idea for how to do that come about? It was really, really a remarkable sequence. We put the most effort of our prep on that sequence and the cherry bomb introduction of full-blown, you know, party scene, nightclub scene were the two things that we put the most effort in terms of resources and, and prep into those to be like, these are sort of the heart of the movie. And the scripts about basically the emotional aftermath of Joey's assault was not really scripted. It was kind of like, you know, a half a page description of like montage where we see Joey trying to go on about her life and basically getting emotionally hijacked by yeah. um, PTSD kind of thing. And we spent a ton of time talking about that base is really being like, if this doesn't work, then we are not setting up the movie in a way where the movie doesn't work. And it wasn't like a dialogue scene where you're learning about the character. It was a sort of a solitary experience and it was about feelings. So it's like, how do you show that? And the answer is you show that visually. So Eamon really was concerned about the fact that he is a white man telling the story of women and women of color and women's experience with sexual assault and how that is not a lived experience that he has been through. Whereas, you know, part of what inspired his idea for making this film is the seeming universality of all women having some degree of violation, you mm. know, against them for, again, to some degree. So he was very open and he was open even when at the interview stage, which was something that I was sort of feeling out before I came along on this journey of like, what am I getting myself into here. <laughs> this is a, is this going to go well in terms of like this subject matter needs to be handled appropriately and sensitively? And do I trust this person in terms of coming along on, on this journey with them? And so that was something that was important to me to figure out before I accepted the job. So he set up a spirit of openness amongst all of the collaborators, in including the actors, where we were very vulnerable in talking about this stuff. I was very open in talking about my own experiences with sexual assault and very open talking about, you know, how I was emotionally numb after my mother was killed and like what, you know, trying, oh, to, trying to function and just wanting the thing that happened to you to go away and you just want to go on and like you can't and like what what does that look like? And like, what are some examples of how we can portray that? And these are the kind of questions that led to the solutions of how we would portray that visually. And so one of the ideas was this, you know, we called it same shit, different day, where it was these um, match cuts of her in three different environments, which were basically her daily routine, her at work, her at the breakfast table and her lying in bed in the morning and mm. the bed in the morning was a repeated environment. Her uniform at work was a repeated outfit, but at the breakfast table, it was like a, a rapid 
changing of clothes, you know, yeah, to, yeah. to show that this is a passage of time and yet nothing's changed. And she's staring ahead, sort of emotionally numb at the camera. So we, you know, we matched that shot, you know, and re redid that. We, we knew that we were going to sort of do those match cuts. The other ideas are that she is at work and the world is going on around her, whereas she is sort of like stuck in her own little world. So that we portrayed that by having her basically standing there at her main table at her diner where she's a waitress and, and everyone else around her is moving in fast motion. Yeah. So basically different stylistic techniques that came from, it wasn't just like, oh, let's throw a bunch of shit to the wall and see what sticks so much as like, what do we want to say? And then how can we portray that visually? So yeah. we spent a bunch of time like looking at different kinds of out of the box filmmaking techniques in our, you know, evening creative prep times, like looking at a technique called step printing made famous by Juan Carwai and Christopher Doyle, where you shoot things at six frames a second or 12 frames a second, but then play them back at six frames or 12 frames. So they don't feel like they're fast motion, but the you're getting more motion blur. Yeah. Um, and we did stuff with lens babies with her riding her bike where the world around her is sort of like warped and abstracted. And I did, it was a bit of a leap of faith of, in terms of how this was going to get edited, you know, in terms <laughs> of like, what, what, if, what if this is going to work? Like, we don't really know how this will come together in the edit so much as like, let's get all of these snippets and vignettes about all these different feelings and experiences and then we'll have to sort of craft that into uh, an experience for the viewer that conveys what we're trying to say with her emotional journey and I, I just love how it turned out I thought I think the editing of that is wonderful I don't mean to reduce it in this way but it's almost like a music video in the movie like it's almost the way you would construct a narrative driven music video that's very true yep well, and so you also uh, brought up about the sequence at uh, the Cherry Bomb. You said that that was another sequence that you spent a lot of time kind of putting together. Can you talk about sort of the visual design and the thinking that went into that? Yeah, so that space was a biker nightclub that was just like a big, raw, black space. And so everything you see in there is production design. So tip of the hat to Perry Madison. We talked at great length about what that space should look like. Like, you know, this very female-centric, basically bastion of female freedom. Uh, it was actually my idea to have nudity in the scene, to like have mm. women feeling just to show how free everyone felt, that it wasn't like a open to the public, you know, heteronormative nightclub where you're afraid of being predated by... <laughs> <laughs> by men trying to hit on you, it was more of a, um, you know, ownership of freedom of self-expression. So we talked at great length about like what kind of people would be there. I know that Eamon and Ezra during prep every weekend would go to Oklahoma City and find the different sort of niche communities like, you know, let's go find the drag queens. Let's go find the kink scene. You know, let's go find yeah. uh, some, you know, tattoo artists, let's go, like whatever, whatever you can think of as sort of like subcultures or communities or like, you know, where my weirdo's at, basically. <laughs> and I mean that in the most like loving and uh, res respectful way, because I, you know, I consider myself a, a weirdo and like to em embrace the weirdo label. It didn't occur to me until you started talking about that, but it's like, you're, I, I've not been to Oklahoma, so I, I can't speak to having been in Oklahoma. But the thought that pops into my head when I think of Oklahoma Biker Bar is, you know, almost the antithesis of the kind of movie you're making. And I kind of wondered what was the vibe of the local community, given the subject matter that you were dealing with, or did, did they care? I mean, a lot of times when you're making a movie somewhere, they don't care. You're just making a movie. We found Guthrie, the, the town that we shot in, to be very welcoming and very inclusive and, and even a little bit progressive. Uh, oh, cool. We had a, a bar across the street from the hotel that we were staying at where we would do karaoke every night. It was like the mm -hmm. only place in town. So it was basically like where we hung out, like cast and crew and locals alike. Yeah. So basically there were people who knew that we were there who sort of became friends with us in the in the community that would just keep coming back to Guthrie to like hang out with us, <laughs> hang out with our yeah. 
crew uh, because we were like, yeah, you're our, you're our kind of people. Like, and everyone was really warm and welcome and opening to the, to the locals and, and hanging out with them. But also the community was very welcoming to us. The locations were fantastic. I know our producers met with the local Chamber of Commerce in terms of helping us find anything that we needed. Great visual, visual places, great landscape. And then Oklahoma City was about an hour away. So they could go to Oklahoma City and find these various subculture groups within, you know, Oklahoma City and be like, hey, come be in our movie. And part of that was winning over the communities in a way that they didn't feel like they were going to be exploited or objectified yeah. or made fun of to be like, you're collaborating with us instead of like, we're making fun of you or we're taking advantage of your unusual appearances because you've got like purple spiked shaved head and, you know, uh, tattoos all over, you know, like it was, yeah it was much more collaborative and winning people into our circle instead of like, we want to use you for your yeah your look or, or, or make you look like an outsider. It's like, no, these are the cool people. Yeah, yeah. But otherwise the design of the nightclub and like the colors and sort of like the pathway of, of we knew we wanted like a grand entrance of moving through the space and that there would be like a bar area, a dance floor area, a lounge area, an entryway, um, you know, some seating and tables. And so we had like, the perimeter of the room was like red, red rope lights, red neon signs. And then the lounge was like a vibrant magenta pink. And then the dance floor was more greens and purples. And the, the bar was like light from the dance floor was sort of like leaking over into the bar. So that the different areas within the space were all meant to sort of like flow. Uh, and there's pool tables. And so there's people playing pool with overhead lights in there. So it we wanted it to feel big and expansive, but we also wanted it to feel like there's a lot going on. There's a little bit of everything for everybody. Felt a little like uh, freakier Goodfellas, like, you know, a more more colorful, more carnivalesque version of, you know, because it, it is that moment of the introduction into the world, you know, where it's kind of a, her initiation into the world in, in a sense. Uh, right. And we, we really wanted to go for that sort of awe and wonder that this underground club, this like subculture is going on in your town. And you, yeah. you never even knew that this was here. And like you being invited into this sort of secret society is like, wow, I'm cool. Like, wow, I get to be here. I had no idea. And so that seduction and that Oh, so we, so we had the, the steady cam shot that was her POV of walking mm. th through the space and, and following Regina in and like all the people making eye contact with Regina as Regina took her through the space. So very much like the, the Goodfellas, like, I'm so impressed that you're taking me through this venue. Yeah. And then we had the reverse, which was a medium close up on her as she's looking around and observing and reacting to all the different things and, and people that she's seeing throughout the space. And I actually didn't expect that they were going to edit it to, to be so flashy with all the cutaways in mm -hmm. there. Like I thought it would be much more, you know, the, the way we conceived it when we shot it was much more traditional. Like you could have intercut between her POV and her reaction shot as she moved through the space in a continuous fashion but instead there's so much sort of eye candy in there that they chose to make it this more like high energy fast-paced flashes of like wait what what was that like was that, a was that a topless woman like dude did i just see what i thought i said and it's like yeah. oh wait was that a man or a woman oh i couldn't even tell like oh next never mind what's you know yeah yeah um, and that's that sort of like moving quick almost overwhelm was part of the excitement that we were trying to create that's cool. That's cool. And it's it's interesting. I mean, like, you know, I've been in that circumstance, too, where you have an idea like we could pull this off with one shot. And then like when you get into the bay, it's like, no, you know, I feel like it works stylistically, especially with the way the rest of the movie is cut. Like if that had not been as, you know, eye candy driven as you, as you described it, like I, f I feel like it would have felt different than the rest of the movie. And it was, it, you know, it, it, it was it would have slowed it down instead of being as exciting as it was. If, yeah, yeah. Once the rest of the movie's editing style took shape. Well, and about how long of a shoot was this? Uh, 23 days. Okay, so pretty tight. Yep. Considering the scope, too. Yep. 
so uh, in the intervening seven years <laughs> since we've spoken, I, I was kind of reacquainting myself with your reel, uh, which is, I believe, just at genderjarnigan.com, right? Correct. Yeah, you've done just some outrageously impressive uh, stuff. I encourage anyone to go check out gingerjarnigan.com. You've got features. You've got amazing beauty stuff on there, commercials, music videos. And I especially wanted to ask you about the uh, Michelle Obama thing that you shot. That was a sort of a political ad, like a long form of mm. for the Joe Biden campaign. So based on the success of Michelle Obama's DNC speech, like how much yeah. that got people talking, they were like, let's have her do another speech, you know, in, in support of of Biden. You know, basically, I think it was released the week before the election. So it, yeah. it's called Michelle Obama's Closing Arguments. And on my website, I have sort of the teaser for it. But what so that gives a taste of what it's what it is and what it's like visually. But the full piece is a 25 minute speech by Michelle Obama about basically for people who had not yet made up their mind about who to vote for, why we didn't want more Trump <laughs> and, <laughs> and why um, why they should give their vote to Joe Biden. So that was a fun experience. That was September 2020, which was sort of the early times of going back to work yeah. during, during the pandemic. So. That it was very challenging shoot in that the directors it, were not able to leave California. We had to do a lot of extra prep to accommodate for the fact that they were not going to be present in the room. So having basically a monitor underneath the A camera, you know, underneath the camera with the teleprompter for the directors who were on camera to communicate with Mrs. Obama and then having me in the room being sort of like the senior creative person leading the crew without the directors present and and managing five cameras. Oh, wow. And then also having only having Mrs. Obama for 45 minutes for what was a 25 minute speech. So oh we we did a whole dress rehearsal the day before that was almost like treating it like a live event of, you know, calling cues, you know, like here's how five, four, three, we're going live, cut to camera A, cut to camera B, you know, and, and also even rehearsing how I would adjust the lighting. You know, I, I know uh, the different, you know, like you mentioned my, my beauty commercials and, um, you know, one of my strengths is my skill at lighting women. And yeah. I know that the difference between A plus lighting and B plus lighting is that you actually fine tune the positioning of the light based on the individual's face. So you can't just light a stand in and then keep the light in the exact same spot and get the 100% best that you're able to get. Like if you know when you're looking at someone's face, like, oh, that light needs to come down like six inches to get, you know, under those eyelashes or that light needs to move eight inches to the left because of the no shadow or like that edge light is not working with the texture of that person's skin or like we had to ask in advance um, which way she was going to wear her hair because she parts her hair, you know, to the right or the left. And so it's like we didn't want to have the key light coming from the side that the sweep of her hair was going oh, um, wow. to be coming. So it was basically like we rehearsed the lighting where I knew that once she sat down, I had five minutes or less to be able to tweak the lighting. And I did not want to be in the situation where I was not allowed to tweak the lighting, where it's basically like, no, sit her down. She, it, it's, it's lit. She looks fine. Let's go. It's like, yeah. I, my goal is like to make people look like better than they've ever looked before on, yeah. on, on camera. Like that is something that I get a sense of, of pride in terms of my craft and my skill. And so it's like, I want to be able to do a quick on the fly adjustment to make it as good as it can be, not just good enough. So we built our entire lighting setup around that kind of flexibility, around being to dim up and dim down. I had a backup key light, like I had a primary key light and then I had another one set to be like, if this isn't working for her, turn that one off and turn this one on. Like that they're already, it's already in place to be like, oh, that one's too big that's overwhelming her and washing her out, like turn it off and turn on the smaller one. Like I just had like redundant backup plans of lighting and like built-in adjustability to be able to be like, I've got three minutes to tweak this. And, you know, everyone 
on standby. The gaffer's <laughs> on the key light. The other the other person's on the dimmer on the on the back. Wow. There's like. <laughs> It was like an orchestra, basically. That's like, crazy. Yeah, it's a high wire act. So, like, uh, how long? How long did you actually take to do the adjustment when she got there? She didn't notice it. That was the goal. <laughs> that was the goal. That she sat there, and by the time that she was ready to go, that I was ready to go. You know, I th- I think when she was done talking to them, you know, since I was the only one in the room, I was basically the voice, and you know, we'd been. Uh, instructed in advance, like how to address her. And I talked to her handler in advance or whatever. And I was just like, you know, excuse me, Mrs. Obama, before we go, could I please just have you look straight ahead into the, you know, teleprompter camera. And so, you know, just like get her eye line, just like look at it being like, this is your last chance to adjust anything. Is everything how I want now that she's clearly looking into the camera? Like, yes. Okay. I'm ready. Wow. I'm glad I asked about that because like, I was just interested because I had no idea about any of the mechanics behind it. And it looks simple enough. Right. But you know, what goes into these things? (laughs) Well, I mean, but that's your job too. In something like in the case of something like that is to make it look and, you know, effortless to to make her look effortlessly perfect. Well, cool. Well, thank you so much. And we, we've already uh, plugged your website, but I'll plug it again. Jendra Jarnigan.com. I would encourage anyone uh, listening to this to go check that out and definitely go see asking for it, which is, as we're recording, is playing theatrically in, is it New York and L.A.? Is it playing anywhere else that you know of? It had started in 10 cities for okay. an initial run. I believe it's now uh, only in New York and L.A., uh, but it's also available on all the VOD platforms, iTunes, Amazon, Vudu, cable providers. I would just encourage anyone, if you can see it in the theater, uh, during during this dip in the pandemic when it's kind of safe to go to the theater, you know, support an indie film. You know, uh, the, the Batman loved it. It's going to do just fine. Like, you know, support support a, a scrappy indie film that, that has something really unique to say. And uh, so thank you so much for coming back on. Oh, before we go, though, is there uh, any place online where people can interact with you? Instagram, a Twitter or uh, whatever? Uh, Instagram. Gen- Gender DP is my Instagram profile. So cool. So uh, go check that out. Follow Jendra, follow her work. And uh, Jendra, thank you so much for coming back. We'll, we'll need to do this before seven more years elapse. That was fun. I'd love to be back. So that was Jendra Jernigan. Jendra, thank you so much for coming on the show. I, I mean, uh, well, let's not let it be another seven years. Holy crap. <laughs> yeah, let's not. For sure. Hey, Ben, guess what? What? Bill paying time is here again. Woot! Okay, Woot is right. We got to thank our fine friends over at DZO Film, makers of really uh, impressive, inexpensive professional cinema lenses, uh, including the Kata Zooms and the Vespid Primes. And speaking of those lenses, in PL mount, they now have some interchangeable magnetic filters that will go behind the lens. It's really, really handy. They give you uh, ND filters as well as some artistic filters like black mist and a streak filter, a blue streak filter, that sort of thing, and a, a DIY bokeh filter. All the information is uh, up on the DZO Film website, and there's also these products now over at Hot Red Cameras. And so if you're interested in purchasing and picking up some cool behind-the-lens filters for your DZO Primes or Zooms, uh, hit us up and we can help you with them and uh, explain all the advantages to having a behind-the-lens lens filter instead of in front of the lens filter because that is a much longer conversation than this ad will allow but uh, but <laughs> but it is uh, it is definitely uh, something that to be able to have those options is really cool and uh, you can avoid dust and mo- moisture and scratches and all that sort of stuff that generally would happen in front and so uh, hit us up at hot rod cameras and we'll tell you all about the new dzo film coop rear filter sets they call them coop k-o-o-p coop nice and now, short ends. So, Ilya, it is time for our patent pending uh, segment, short ends. What is your pet obsession of the week? My pet obsession this week is something called Doll E. D A L L hyphen E. Now, you might be aware of various AIs out there that will actually take text and generate an image. Like you can type in, like, like this has existed for a little while. There's a few things that have, that have come along, but perhaps mm-hmm. yeah. the most sophisticated text to image creation system I've seen is Dall E. And uh, it's built on an open AI framework. And, you know, you will, as a member of the public, be able to join a wait list to be able to, uh, to give it a try. But 
it allows you to do some really, really clever stuff, including like request an artistic image in a particular style. So you could say like, I want an astronaut riding a donkey in the style of Monet Hmm. and whiz bang. It will create this for you. And there it is. There's a thing. And if you want a variation on that, there's all kinds of variations. So I assume you can do stuff in the style of Salvador Dali. Yes, it's so sophisticated and smart. It's now been learning for so long, this neural network that they've created, that you can basically take almost anything that you can think of. And people have, you know, tediously been entering images for the uh, for the AI to learn. And the ones that are labeled correctly means that the text library just gets better and better. Ones that are mislabeled, like let's say an example they use is if there's a picture of an airplane, but someone writes car, then of course the system gets dumber because then it's, it's got it wrong. But as long as people keep doing it correctly it's it's very very impressive wait and so i can troll this system yes and i can, can make it dumber <laughs> you could but i don't think they're gonna allow mm. the general public to have access to help make it learn dumber you, what really what it wants to do is get to a point i think where people can try it and then ultimately i have to say this might create some problems for people in the graphic arts trades if it's really is as good as that they say it is and it's as inexpensive to do as this appears to be because it seems like it's all very open source and sort of open to uh, the world and then i'm also going to extrapolate here the next step it is only a matter of time before the same systems that are doing still images via these neural nets and and learning can do it with motion images. And uh, when that happens, everyone who's involved in some sort of like uh, animation or artistic space might have new competition from not necessarily what the AI is hoisting upon you, but for how good you can describe what it is that you need to have happen. And I think it's only a matter of time before there is uh, animated shorts and movies that are entirely created via AI that actually resemble some semblance of what it is that someone wants, rather than just like, oh, we fed in a bunch of data into a computer and this is what I came up with. No, people are going to be able to guide it, maybe not necessarily on a frame by frame basis, but uh, probably a keyframe basis. And that will be very, very interesting when that happens. We're not talking about too far into the future uh, because this Dolly system, if you go take a look at it right now, you'll see some pretty impressive still images that the system has created. I'll check that out. That sounds awesome. So, Ben, what's your uh, short end this week? My short end is uh, for any, anyone who would be paying attention to this kind of thing uh, probably already knows. But uh, and I think I talked about this a year or so ago, but Adobe acquired for I believe it was like one point two billion dollars the review site Frame.io. And if you are an Adobe Creative Cloud subscriber, as I am, you now have Frame.io in Adobe, meaning for at least Premiere and After Effects, you can use Frame.io to uh, get notes, but it's like fully integrated into Premiere, meaning if I'm doing an edit and I send the review link to you, you can make notes, you can scribble on the frame and say, fix this light, you can do all kinds of stuff, and then all of your notes will show up effortlessly supposedly in my premiere pro uh timeline as markers so i'll be able to just see all your notes right right in my timeline no must no fuss now up until now i've been using an upgraded version of vimeo because they have pretty amazing review tools that are similar to this but they're not integrated into premiere and i have to say i'm probably going to be downgrading my Vimeo subscription as a result of this because Frame.io perfected and had a, had a really solid way of doing the review thing. And so when I'm working for a client, as I am currently working for three clients, I can send them a Frame.io link and uh, you don't have to be a Frame.io subscriber. Anyone with internet access on their desktop, on their laptop, on their phone, on their iPad, on their Android, whatever, they can watch it, they can make notes, and I'll get their notes basically in real time. It basically takes collaboration and puts it everywhere all at once and then integrates all of the notes and feedback that you get immediately into your project file. It's it's pretty uh, pretty elegant. Now, I'm as I say that, I had a couple hours to kind of dick around and try and make it work the other day, and I upgraded uh, my Premiere. I'm such a dork about it that I have Premiere, but I also run their public beta, and I could not get it to work as seamlessly as it's supposed to work. I was able to get it to work, and I don't know if for some reason they're going to, they'll probably come out with a patch or something in the next week or so, knowing Adobe. Uh, they, they upgrade it pretty quickly. I mean, a lot of people complain about Adobe being expensive, 
because if you're if you're subscribing to the Creative Cloud, it's fifty bucks a month, and if you wanted to buy the full version of DaVinci Resolve, for instance, it's only three hundred dollars, and I think it's the same for Final Cut Pro Ten. But man, oh man, Adobe uh, works overtime to cram as much value into their programs as they possibly can, and and they've really taken a lot of the boring, repetitive tasks and figured out how to automate them or how to how to make AI power them. And then this is is kind of a next level thing where you know it's going to be so much easier to get feedback and to make changes and to uh, integrate that kind of in, into everyone's workflow. So check it out. Wow. Okay. That sounds really uh, interesting and powerful. Yeah. And a uh, total random side note, but I know I've talked about it on here before. I'm editing a project that we shot with Bill Totolo, who subbed for me when I had COVID-19. We shot it in this room at the client's facility that was super echoey. And I just can't say enough good things about Descript. They're not a sponsor, but holy crap, I was able, like, the room was echoey, and I ran everybody's audio through Descript, and it sounded like I had to add artificial reverb into the audio just to make it sound like it was in a room at all anymore because it was too clean. Like, it was so clean after running it through Descript that it was weird. And uh, I just can't, it, it's it's such an amazing product. I hope Adobe buys them and puts all that AI into what they do because it, it's using uh, AI to fill in frequencies that it doesn't have in the original recording. And it's also, I don't know what kind of crazy math it's doing to remove, in this case, pretty hairy reverb that was like, it, it, it was a pretty live room that we had to record in. Wow. You know, we wow. had the microphone I mean, right in everyone's face and it still was, you know, echoey as all hell. I know we've used uh, Descript on this show and it, it seems to work really well, but that that's <laughs> that's pretty cool. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, freaky. I don't know what it's doing to create. It's almost like it's tearing their voice apart and recreating it. You know, if it was a, if it was a picture, it would be like I handed you a picture that was like uh, I handed you an image that was so overexposed that, you know, there were like three live pixels on the frame. And then and you handed me back the Mona Lisa like it's so <laughs> shockingly good. I can play it for you off air. Unfortunately, I, I would I would play some of the audio on here for us, but it's not my audio to play. It's for a client. But I just can't say enough good things about Descript. And it's I mean, like they're paid parts of it, but this part of it, the studio sound thing, totally free. Wow. That's really cool. Well, we're rapidly heading towards an AI world in which I think that these sort of like fantastical AIs that people talk about might get all the headlines, but really sort of like more mundane tasks might just become these relatively smart scripting services where you call up your, you know, your, your refrigerator and say, Hey, please order more of X or whatever it might be. Or how or you call up your fridge and ask how, how many eggs you have left and they can tell you. And your refrigerator's like, your cholesterol is kind of high. I don't think you, you should stop, eat that many eggs. Stop eating eggs. I'm telling and you right like, now. Shut no up, refrigerator. Eggs. I want an omelet of yours. <laughs> Who asked you? And, and it'll do it in the, the voice of Arnold Schwarzenegger, which will be really disturbing. <laughs> I want so. it in, in the voice of the late, great Gilbert Gottfried. I want everything in his voice. <laughs> ah, flack. <laughs> Uh, all right, Ben. Hey, I think that just about does it today. Let's let's thank some people. Who do we have to thank? Well, right out of the gate, uh, I'd like to thank Alana Cody for hooking up this. And we have several amazing interviews coming up. Uh, we should also thank Ben Katz, who didn't he just move back up to Seattle? He's got some family in Seattle. He's, he might be there right now. Happy trails, uh, Ben. We will see you soon, I hope. And we're excited to continue working with you uh, across the continent. And uh, last but never least, uh, we should also thank Kaze Alatrakshi, who created every scrap of music that you've heard on this, on the entire show. He's, uh, he's an amazing composer. He's an amazing colorist. He's an amazing CGI artist. What can't Kaze do? There's nothing I, he can't do. I, I don't know. I bet he can make a, a mean souffle, too, that guy. Oh, he's an amazing cook. Are you, are you kidding me? I, I, I'm guessing. He's got this really fancy pizza oven at his house. It was really good. Oh, all right. Well, uh, hey, uh, Ben, where can people find you if they want to check in on you after this, uh, well, listening to this podcast? Uh, cross your fingers that this week you can actually go to benrock.com for the first time since the internet and find information <laughs> about me. I, by the way, I reached out to another guy also named Ben Rock, who I know on Twitter, to ask if he wanted to, like, I, I could, you know, like, hey, I got it. Do you want me to put your thing on there? And he was like, nah, I'm okay. Um, <laughs> so it'll just be me. There's one other Ben Rock that I know of outside of that that I, I, I thought about reaching out to. But anyway, if you go there and there's nothing there, go to benrockonline.com. 
And uh, as always, go to Facebook and join Needs a Werewolf. We're, we're, we're just buzzing with werewolf stuff. It's amazing all the werewolf stuff we have going on on Facebook. Ilya, where can people find you? Uh, you can find me over at Hot Red Cameras, hotredcameras.com. That's uh, where I spend uh, much of my time and days. And if you want to get in touch with me via the social medias and stuff, you can find me on LinkedIn and the, and the like. That's uh, that's I had several people uh, find me on LinkedIn recently. So, yeah. Yeah, I, I, I get a lot of LinkedIn uh, requests from people who are uh, listeners to the show. All right. Well, I think that's going to do it for another episode of the Cinematography Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. All right. This has been the Cinematography Podcast, presented by Hot Rod Cameras. Find your next camera, lens, or accessory on the web at hotrodcameras.com. Don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes and connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.